Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections. I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, I receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 99 of History of the Marine Corps, World War II, Introduction, Part 1. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I consider my favorite time in Marine Corps history to be the early Corps. The battles weren't as sexy, but there's something about Marines serving on ships, firing from top masts, and conducting early amphibious landings that just seem right. There were also many firsts during this time that were pivotal moments in the Corps, and those moments are embedded in a lot of our traditions. But when it comes to the most fascinating time in U.S. military history, World War II takes that spot for me. When we hear about Marines fighting in World War II, the discussion typically revolves around island hopping in the Pacific. But Marines weren't limited to the Pacific campaign, and they fought in European and African theaters as well. I'll get into all of that, but before we jump into Marines kicking ass in the Pacific, We're going back to the beginning for a better understanding of the events leading up to the United States entering World War II. This episode discusses a few events leading up to the war, including the rise of dictatorship in Europe and military control in Japan. We'll briefly talk about how the rest of Europe reacts to Hitler seizing other territories and end with Germany's invasion of Poland. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. World War II was the most expensive and deadliest war in history. After adjusting for current inflation, the cost of the war was over $21 trillion, and the U.S. spent almost a fifth of that alone. By 1945, around 3% of the world's population had died directly because of this conflict, most of them civilians. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, You know I like to start any new segment by discussing the events leading up to why the United States decided to engage in a specific conflict. The amount of documentation and research that went into the Second World War is immense. Just about every country involved heavily used film and photographs for wartime propaganda. This medium helped document extraordinary feats of heroism and troops overcoming insurmountable odds. The most famous military picture ever taken, Raising the Flag on Iwo Jima by Joe Rosenthal, captured Marines raising the United States flag on Mount Suribachi, 
a few days after they invaded the island of Iwo Jima. The incredibly bloody campaign lasted for another month until Marines had the island secure. Most people marked the beginning of World War II on September 1, 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland. However, when you start digging into the details, there are different arguments about what events started the chain reaction leading to World War II. And the opinions often align with the part of the world the historian is from. Some mark World War I as, quote, the original catastrophe, and consider this the precursor of the Second World War. And although World War I did not directly cause another global conflict, there were several consequences, which we'll get into, that began turning the gears for a Second World War. Italian historian Enzo Traverso considers World War II part of the European Civil War. Even the start of this conflict varies amongst historians. Some put the start date as early as 1870 during the Franco-Prussian War. Others consider the Bolshevik coup d'etat in 1917 the start of the European War, which we briefly touched on during episode 95, Post-War Disillusionment, Part 2. There are arguments that the Spanish Civil War in July 1936 was the precursor to the war, and many Asian historians argue that it began in 1931, when Japan invaded Manchuria. The point of view for some Americans is that World War II started when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. I typically place the start of World War II with the beginning of the Great Depression in the United States. The main reason is that the Great Depression is arguably the main event that led to the rise of dictatorship worldwide. In October 1929, the prosperity of the 1920s quickly ended with the stock market crash and the Great Depression that followed. Over a quarter of the U.S. workforce was unemployed, and the American people suffered as a result. By the time the new decade hit, the effect of this economic downturn had impacted the entire planet. After the Great War, the world was neither at peace nor in political order. The Treaty of Versailles didn't just blame Germany as the sole responsible party for the war, but it required them to pay an exorbitant amount of money for their actions. In 1921, the London schedule of payments required reparations that totaled 132 billion gold marks, which is around half a trillion dollars today. Germany struggled to make payments, and as a solution to the problem, the government printed a lot of money to help pay off their debt. The excess cash eventually led to inflation, which quickly dropped the value of the German currency. When Germany first received the bill for World War I, one U.S. dollar was equivalent to around 160 marks. Less than two years later, a dollar was equal to 4.2 trillion marks. The German currency was worthless, and the Great Depression led to further economic collapse. Economic instability transitioned to political unrest, and European citizens started to panic. As a solution to this problem, they turned to strong leaders, promising to fix all of their problems. The Great Depression, coupled with Germany's anger about their punishment for World War I, motivated citizens to turn to Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist Party, commonly known as the Nazi Party, to help solve their problems. 
Through Hitler's persuasive speeches, he promised to give Germans jobs and restore their power in the world. In 1933, the German parliament named Hitler the Chancellor of Germany and passed a law that gave him total control, which officially made him a dictator. Over in the Far East, the Great Depression also contributed to Japan's rise in military rule. In the mid to late 1800s, Japan started to become more militaristic and nationalistic. They seized a lot of land surrounding their country. Some of the island's marines invaded during World War II were captured by Japan during this time, including Okinawa and Iwo Jima. Between 1930 and 1932, Japan suffered the deepest economic downturn in modern history. There were two causes for this. One, due to Japan's lack of natural resources, their economy relied heavily on trade. When the Great Depression hit, it crippled the nation. Two, the Minsei Party adopted a deflationary policy to eliminate weak banks and firms and to prepare the nation for a return to the pre-war gold standard. These two influences caused many workers and farmers to lose jobs and face starvation. Military officers in Japan already despised the West and blamed many of their problems on the spread of Western ideas. Japanese citizens also lost faith in their government. Politicians made deals with big business, which came at the cost of the public. Just like the Nazi party, Japanese military leaders claimed that they were for the common man. Citizens were desperate for help, and they turned to the military for solutions that their politicians weren't delivering. Radical military leaders capitalized on public support, and they took control of the civilian leadership. Every department in Japan, including industry, commerce, agriculture, education, the press, and even religion, was subject to the military's will. On September 18, 1931, members of the Imperial Army set off a bomb near Japan's South Manchurian Railroad. The Japanese military framed the Chinese, and they used this attack to invade Manchuria. In order to keep a peaceful relationship with Western nations, Emperor Hirohito opposed any further attacks on China. Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi also spoke out against this move and denounced the Japanese puppet government embedded in Manchuria. Less than a year later, 11 officers of the Japanese army assassinated Tsuyoshi. Their original plan included killing the actor Charlie Chaplin as well, thinking his murder would force the U.S. into war and lead to the restoration of the Empire of Japan. Lieutenant Seishi Koga stated, quote, Chaplin is a popular figure in the United States and the darling of the capitalist class. We believe that killing him would cause a war with America and thus we could kill two birds with a single stone, unquote. When Tsuyoshi was killed, Chaplin was attending a sumo match with the Prime Minister's son. Going to that event saved both of their lives. The officers were court-martialed, and they used the public attention to proclaim their loyalty to the Emperor of Japan. The public supported the assassination. Japanese citizens sent thousands of petitions, either signed or completely written in blood, 
demanding the assassins be pardoned. Some estimates put the number of petitions sent as high as 350,000. The judge gave the criminals a light sentence, and this incident marked the end of civilians having any control of the military in Japan. This decision eventually led to the February 26th incident, where Japanese army officers organized a coup d'etat, effectively taking over Japan. With the Japanese army now in power, they turned towards domination to address their economic problems. They seized control of Manchuria, renamed it Manchukuo, and implanted a puppet government to control the new territory. Japan used Manchuria's land, resources, and people to improve its own economy. In 1937, Japan went into a full-out war with China and the Second Sino-Japanese War. And just to jump back to the beginning of this episode, some historians consider this event the start of World War II. The two countries fought until the end of the war. Victory for China would only come after China joined Allied forces and Japan surrendered in 1945. Although totalitarian regimes with Benito Mussolini in Italy and Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union predate the Great Depression, their rise to power was similar. Italy was one of the first countries in Europe to become a totalitarian state. They had extensive debt after World War I, and many Italians were out of work due to their failing economy. Mussolini was the editor of a popular socialist magazine, and he collected a considerable following after making outrageous promises and offering simple solutions to complex problems. Italians ate it up like gelato on a hot day. During rallies, they would chant, Duce, 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 which translated to leader, leader, leader. He was a passionate speaker and a magnificent showman. I'll post some videos of him speaking on historyofthemarinecorps.com under this episode's page. Italians loved this guy, and Mussolini was a personification of what they wanted Italy to be. After he rose to power, he quickly ended democracy in Italy. He banned all political parties except his fascist party, and Italians lost their freedoms. On May 22, 1839, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini signed the Pact of Steel Alliance, committing the two countries politically and militarily. Back in Germany, the Nazi party continued to grow in strength, and during the 1930s, they started to use more militaristic tactics. The Nazis' goal was to reunite all Germans, including those living outside Germany. In Mein Kampf, Hitler called out his birth country of Austria and claimed he would create a union between Austria and Germany by any means possible. On March 12, 1938, he set out on his promise and Germany marched troops into Austria and annexed the country. Hitler appointed a new Nazi government and set his eyes on Sudetenland next, which is located in the eastern part of Czechoslovakia. This territory was part of Austria before World War I and contained a large population of Germans. The 1919 Treaty of St. Germain gave this territory to Czechoslovakia and 3 million Sudeten Germans suddenly became Czechoslovakian citizens. Despite being the second largest group in the nation, 
the government didn't allow the Germans to participate in decisions concerning the country. When Czechoslovakia called an assembly to write the new constitution, only Czechs and Slovaks were invited. Sudeten Germans were forced to be part of a new nation, and once there, they weren't allowed to help shape the country's decision. When the Great Depression hit, the impact primarily affected Sudetenland's industrial cities. Now, the government did try to help the Germans by providing unemployment relief, but the support wasn't enough to match the damages brought by the Great Depression. The Germans grew angry and felt the government was helping the Czechs and the Slovaks at their expense. The Nazi party started to gain more speed, eventually leading to Konrad Henlein, a loyal follower of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. He started the Sudeten German party, an assertive and highly violent group. As Henlein became more popular, the group would physically attack anyone who didn't support him. During the 1935 elections, he received two-thirds of the German votes. The popularity of Henlein caught Hitler's attention, and two weeks after Hitler informed his generals to annex the Sudetenland, he met with Henlein in private. When Germany annexed Austria, Henlein used this opportunity to show how peaceful the transition was into their homeland. This propaganda helped bring more Germans to his side. When elections were held the following month, he pulled 90% of the German votes. In September, Henlein seceded from Czechoslovakia. While all this was happening, France and Britain were both watching from the sidelines and did nothing about Hitler seizing territory. France, and especially Britain, followed a foreign policy of appeasement. World War I caused many Europeans to despise the idea of another war. The countries were still in debt, and a lot of Europeans died in this war. They also didn't have the money, resources, or motivation to begin another conflict in Europe. They became pacifists during Hitler's rise to power. This decision was closely associated with British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, and his name has become synonymous with giving in to demands. This policy aimed to maintain peace in Europe by making small compromises with Germany. On September 21st, Neville Chamberlain met with Hitler to see if war could be avoided with Czechoslovakia. Although the Czech government had caved in to all of Henlein's demands, Hitler still wanted to attack. Both Britain and France also succumbed to Germany's commands, and when they met with Italy and Germany, all countries agreed that Sudetenland should go to Germany. Just like the Czechs' decision to write their constitution without representation from the Germans living in Sudetenland, other European countries decided to give this territory back to Germany without Czechoslovakia having a say. On October 1st, Nazi troops marched in and seized Sudetenland. Six months later, despite Britain and France's attempt to avoid another war by appeasing to Germany's demands, Hitler's forces invade and occupy Czechoslovakia. This move made the British, specifically Chamberlain, look like a fool, and Europe had to rethink how to handle Hitler. This scenario was beginning to look eerily familiar. By this time, the Germans had either control 
or an alliance with most of the central and a large chunk of Eastern Continental Europe. The next target on Hitler's list was Poland, which had absorbed the German provinces of West Prussia, Poznan, and Upper Silesia. Hitler began to accuse Poland of persecuting ethnic Germans to justify his invasion. However, Germany was worried that a war with Poland would cause the Soviet Union, a bordering country to the east, to declare war on Germany. Hitler met with the Soviet Union, and the two countries agreed to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which promised the Soviet Union half of Poland. On September 1, 1939, Germany began their air raids on Poland. Shortly after, a German battleship begins firing on the coastal city of Gdansk. Two German divisions, consisting of one and a half million soldiers, 2,000 airplanes, and more than 2,500 tanks, invade from the west. On September 3, 1939, Britain officially declared war on Germany, per their alliance agreement with Poland. Quote, if any action clearly threatened Polish independence, and if the Poles felt it vital to resist such action by force, Britain would come to their aid. Unquote. France declared war the same day. However, neither country sent military support. The German army destroyed Poland's defenses, and the country began to fall. On September 17th, the Soviet Union attacked from the east. Warsaw surrendered to the Germans 10 days later, and two days after that, Poland was divided between Germany and the Soviet Union. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get into how the United States and the Marine Corps were preparing for the war, as well as how the war is escalating in Europe and Asia. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Second World War by Antony Beaver. This is a great comprehensive book about World War II and is one of the sources I used as a reference for the series. The book starts with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931 and covers the entire Second World War, ending with the final surrender of Axis forces. Due to multiple theaters, a lot of activity was taking place throughout the globe and the author jumps back and forth a lot, but he does a great job making it work, and the storyline is easy to follow. This is another long one for you, but it's definitely worth it. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.